I'm Emma. And I'm Colin. And this is Frederick Uncut. Where we talk about what you're curious about across the county with a new episode each Tuesday. This week, in the United States, one in four women and one in seven men experience severe abuse by an intimate partner. Frederick County is no exception. And today, reporters Wyatt Massey and Heather Mongilio tell the stories of local survivors and provide information on local resources. So Heather, can you tell us a little bit about where you got the idea for this series and why you wanted to tackle this issue? Uh, So October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, and it's October, so I figured we should do a story. Um, I think I pitched it to Alan like the first couple days I was here, Um, and then once Wyatt started, I asked if he wanted to help out, and he said yes. And we initially said it was gonna be a three-part series, And then now it's a four-part series with like three different follow-ups planned. Why a series? Why not uh, just one story for that matter? Why not like a 10-part series? Uh, I wish we could do a 10-part series, uh, but I don't think everyone wants to read about domestic violence every day of their lives. Um, But it's a really complicated issue. Um, This series is very a broad overview, as long as it is already. Um, I keep joking to Wyatt that we could probably write a book about this. Uh, so how did you decide which topics to really focus in on? So uh, domestic violence is kind of my area of expertise. It's been something I've been reporting on for three years, and I just spent my entire master's year writing a thesis on domestic violence and traumatic brain injuries. Um, I had been a crime reporter, which is where I first heard about domestic violence. And uh, so the police and the legal aspect made sense since I had already written a similar piece for a different paper. Um, and then the health aspect made sense because I um, am the health reporter. <laughs> this uh, housing made sense because I know that's why it's focused and why it's beat. And then um, the mental health part, we've been kind of sharing. I really like psychology, so I wanted to include some of that. And um, why it's been really good about just asking when he can help out. Were there any, you you focused on, as you said, the police sort of element of this. Were there any stories, uh, having talked to the police, that stuck out to you in, in your reporting that, you know, that I know that you wrote about, but something that you'll probably never forget? So I didn't get to talk to too many police members. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't any striking stories. They always talk about how they're the most dangerous incidents oh, um, because you just don't know what's going on. You don't get a lot of information. And... They often can contain a weapon, um, and there's a lot of research that suggests that if a person's willing to kill their spouse or their loved one or their um, girlfriend, boyfriend, that they're they're easily easily able to kill a police officer. Um, so that is one of the fears that go goes on. Um, a couple years ago, I did go on a ride along with police officers, and get like it was like back to back ride alongs because I wanted to see a domestic violence incident myself. So I've been on a call. And you don't get a lot of information, but it is one of those calls that if you've ever listened to a scanner or you've ever been in a police car, all the sirens go off, all the alerts go off for a domestic. One of the more striking uh, sort of statistics in your uh, story was that uh, there's there's something that you get, there's uh, it's roughly 50 calls a month that you received or that the police department received uh, from January to August, I believe, it August 31st. Depends on which police agency, but there was some for, we had one agency that gave us, I think, 27 through 2018, all in one number, but I think everything else was 2018 year to date, so August, September-ish. Have they, have, did you get any insight with them about, you know, sort of how 
they feel the the domestic violence issue can be sort of curbed and and get better? Uh, I didn't. One thing that Wyatt and I kind of were taken aback by was the um, amount of arrests that mm-hmm. correspond with each of those calls. And there is a little bit more that they explained about that, which is that you only you only asked for the on-scene arrests. We didn't ask for the actual arrests. So mm-hmm. if, and um, there's been a lot of research that suggests that people flee. And so that no longer is on a scene arrested so that might bring down the numbers. But I think that a lot of people talked about over the past 10 years, um, there's been a lot of change in how law enforcement approaches domestic violence. Um, I think it's changed in healthcare, it's changed in housing, it's changed in the legal system. But I think for me, I always notice the police one the most because um, you went from a period where there was... Um, Police officers would go on the scene not knowing what was going on, and they'd, there were times where they'd arrest the wrong person, they'd arrest both people. Um, this is just in general, not act, like just within uh, Frederick County. Um, but then you, and the, especially with strangulation, which is really common, women would just act so hysteric because they had just been strangled, and so police officers often interpreted that as like, oh, they're hysteric, they're not reliable, but the really calm male person he knows what's going on because he's calm he can tell us what's going on um and so over the past 10 years um that's definitely shifted and that's something that i've heard across the board from all different sorts of police officers yeah so it sounds like some of the challenges from a police perspective are just the unpredictability um of domestic violence cases and um also the challenge of potentially people fleeing can you tell us a little bit about what the process is when that call comes in about a potential domestic violence incident happening? What's the process? What are some of the other challenges once a police officer is on scene? Um, I don't really know too much because when I asked that question, I got a lot of it depends on the call. Uh, from what, uh, what they did say is that there are a lot of forms that you can fill out. They do a lot of training. Um, domestic violence has been an in-service for a lot of the police officers. Um, I know that with the strangulation or the training institute of on strangulation prevention um, does a lot of trainings for police officers, and that's I think now gives them a um, strangulation form that they can fill out. Um, they'll often ask people to fill out a lethality assessment, which is a series of I think ten to 12, 12 questions that try to figure out how lethal a situation is. So they'll ask about uh, if a person's employed, has ever threatened them, has ever strangled them, uh, has a gun in the house. Um, so there's different questions in different forms that they'll fill out, but I don't know the specifics on, there's no like set procedure from what I got. Yeah. And you had a chance to talk to survivors yourself for the reporting of these stories, right? Um, do you want to talk about maybe, you know, some of those stories that you heard and what has been most striking that you've heard from survivors? So we've talked to seven, six, seven survivors, I think, um, which was really great because I didn't think <laughs> we'd get even one. Um, so the fact that we had six or seven actually come forward and talk to us was really amazing. Um, I think the thing that struck me is that there are a bunch of different types of survivors, um, and a lot of them talked about the emotional abuse um, going in. I think even I always thought about domestic violence as a lot of the physical abuse because I focus on strangulation. I was so focused on traumatic brain injuries in the past. So when I was interviewing um, survivors last year, it was always... Right, tell me about the time that you got strangled. Tell me about the time that he threw you off the porch. Tell me about the worst night of your life. Um, with a lot of these interviews, it was a lot of uh, asking them about the emotional abuse, having them come forward and just telling, letting them say as much or as less as they want. Um, we had most people who asked 
for their names not to be used um, for their own safety, which we had gone in saying that was okay. We did have one person who said it's okay to use her name. Um, and she, for, for her process and for her to keep working through what happened, that was something that she wanted to be able to do is have her name out there. Yeah, so, and who was that? Which story was that? That was um, Anastasia, and she's in the first story, and she'll be in the one that's coming out for this sun- Sunday. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what she experienced? Yeah, so um, Anastasia, uh, I actually met her covering an opioid um, talent show, uh, and she told, was talking about her story there, and she had mentioned in an interview that she had also had um, domestic violence in her past, so I followed back up with her and asked if she'd come in and talk to us. So um, she's a, uh, was a gr- great interview to have just because she is a couple, uh, I think it's like six years now, six years removed, so she can really reflect on the experience. But she um, grew up in an abusive home. She was dating this really great guy, she said, but because she was growing up in an abusive home, she was more, she was drawn to chaos because that's what was familiar, that's what she knew. So she, there's like a quote where she says like love and affection was just, uncomfortable for her um so she ended up meeting this one guy and she left her college to go move in with him and i believe he was in ohio um and they went and he actually ended up being controlling um setting off a lot of red flags and um she had left decided to uh had come back um, after staying with some friends, and um, he beat her very severely, and she ended up in the hospital. Um, and then she said, like, her parents whisked her away for a month, but then uh, they were in Minnesota at that time, and she met another guy who was also abusive, um, and then ended that relationship, and then met another guy who was abusive. Um, and after the third one, um, she realized that she, like, she, I don't don't want to put my her words into my mouth, but um, she came to some a realization essentially that something needed to change, and um, ever since then, has been has not been in an abusive relationship. You said you mentioned that that she grew up in an abusive household, uh, and you also did uh, a lot of reporting on the effect that growing up in a, in an abusive household, the effect that that can have on somebody. Can you explain? Uh, some of the things that you, you know, found out and how that does affect somebody growing up? Um, so one of the big focuses of the last article is going to be on adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Um, it's also a big focus in Frederick County. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence on people who are abused as children becoming abusers themselves. And so going into this article, having already done Anastasia's interview, I really wanted to make sure we focused on the people who witnessed domestic violence and then also fell into relationships that were abusive. Um, I feel like there's so much research on the male side of abuse that I wanted to only focus on the people who aren't always talked about. Um, So there is a lot of evidence that suggests that um, if you witness domestic violence, that you're more likely to be abused as a child. Um, There's a lot that goes on with the brain structures and when you are abused or witnessed um, abuse because of the stress hormone um, cortisol, which can uh, play a really bad, um, cause really bad things in your brain. Um, so there's like a, one of the fun, uh, things in your brain called the hippocampus, which can, uh, is good for memory storage and retrieval can get affected. Your, um, amygdala, which is where your fear response is, um, 
control can get affected. And so that can really change your life going forward. Um, So a lot of the research that we found there is that basically witnessing abuse, whether it's uh, your parents or even have experiencing abuse, is really bad to have in your childhood. Um, But the good news is that you can break the cycle, and that's what um, a lot of people have talked about, a lot of therapy, um, anti-psych, sorry, psychological medications um, can be helpful too. Um, Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So what happens um, if, if you do end up in the hospital? You said that that particular survivor ended up in the hospital. What happens in that situation? So if you were to go to Frederick um, County, or sorry, Frederick Memorial Hospital, um, and there's a lot of things that go on with hospitals, and that's another really interesting part, um, because the first thing is you get really lucky if you get to go to the hospital, um, because the person who caused the injuries is the person who um, is already controlling in your house. So I talked to um, a nurse from Hopkins who does a lot of research on domestic violence, and she was saying how she remembers one a person talking to her about how her husband had just beat her. She ended up breaking her jaw and needed to go to the hospital. And she had asked for the keys from her husband. And then the husband said, well, you better make up a good story. Um, so there's a lot that goes on. They might go to the hospital with their wives or boyfriends, girlfriends, and the person that they just abused so that they can't get them alone. Um, and the hospital staff is really aware of that. They just um, got a new suite that's outside of the emergency room now. Um, but it allows them to do forensic exams. So if you um, are sexually assaulted or a victim of domestic violence, that so they can bring you in. Um, but they're making sure that they can get you away from your partner so that they can ask, really ask you the right questions. They're looking for red flags. Um, so if you go to the hospital and you talk to them, they'll look for the red flags and then they'll bring you back. And then they have um, a special camera that can really... Um, it can enhance images so that they can see um, scratches, bruises, uh, just really make sure that they can mark all that. Um, they have alternate light sources which can help enhance bruising. So anything that you see on the visible um, eye, but just want to make sure it's clearer, they can use. Um, they've got a bunch of other things. They were, uh, they're really happy because this new suite, it's now a three-room suite instead of a one cramped room. Um, but they have their own bathroom, their own showers. They have a place for just women to charge their phones, get something to eat, because you can be in the emergency room for hours and then finally see somebody. Um, so that's really helpful for them. Uh, for the women, what I found really interesting is because just because you get um, hurt badly enough that you have to go to the hospital does not mean that you will be leaving a relationship, um, which is part of domestic violence it takes up people seven to nine times usually to leave a relationship just because it is controlling it is someone you love yeah um so if you go to the hospital they will take pictures they will document all this they will give you the information they'll give you numbers um to places to call if you um want to get away um but if you don't they will still hold a file that way the fourth or fifth time or if you've already or even want to press charges then they have the pictures so, so you can um, be able to press charges and have the evidence if you want to do that yeah so i read in one of your articles you were saying that it, the most dangerous time for a person can be when they do make that decision to try to leave um what resources are there and and what are some of the mental health issues that that might come up after someone chooses to leave a situation um, so in terms of 
resources. There are emergency shelters that people can call. Um, Why well, can go more into this, but Hartley House is really good at about having people who've already contacted them to um, talk about the different resources. They, I think they mentioned it's like three to four times they'll con be contacted before a person might leave, and that can help them um, with a safety plan, how the, how to, what to start putting away, what to make sure they know how they're going to get out. Um, some people have the choice to leave. Some people, like one of the people we talked to was actually, her husband locked her out of the house, so she was homeless because of that. So there are different ways that people will all of a sudden not have a home, um, but often it's the people who have to walk out of their own homes that they had, um, and leaving is really dangerous. Um, they're, the person's losing control, and that makes them dangerous. Um, you have- the, the abuser. Yeah. The, yes. Because domestic violence, it's all about control. Even when you talk about strangulation, it's not necessarily, I want to kill you, it's I want to show you that I can. Um, and so with, uh, when someone's leaving, they will threaten the kids, they'll threaten the pets, um, they'll threaten you. Um, and then when you come back, it can even be more dangerous where if you've left maybe the, um, but then you decide to come back, then they might actually end up killing you. Um, so because of that loss of control, um, you end up with a person who's really scared. Um, so we have emergency shelters, but a lot of those are um, only for a couple weeks and there there were everyone's working to try to help a person but um you don't necessarily if you're coming from a place where you've never had any money because the your boyfriend or your husband has always controlled the money um you might not have a job because he might not have let you work um or you might have had a job and you have to quit because you know straight that where you are um so there's all these different factors that make it very difficult for women to then get housed and you can ask why at all about that. Yeah, yeah but it's, so what about some of those longer terms effects? So if you do have a traumatic incident like that, you're threatened or um, something like that, what kind of is your mental health state over the years? Kind of, did you hear from that at all when you were talking to survivors? Yeah, so women um, who are experiencing domestic violence are more likely to have um, post-traumatic stress disorder. They're more likely to be depressed. They're um, more likely to be anxious. Um, there's a lot of uh, mental illness that goes along with it just because they've been living in fear for so long. And um, when you're in fear and you're, and you're stressed out, things happen in your brain that stress is a chemical um, and that is going to change how your brain works, just like if anyone was in a really traumatic situation. Um, and then there's the added component that there are women, a lot of women with traumatic brain injuries um, from their husband's beating them or their uh, boyfriend's beating them. And there is brain damage from strangulation because you're cutting off air. And that's good. that also compounds things. Um, there's people who have memory loss because of that. There's people who can't always find the words um, or little things that are just noticed, you know, that they notice, which is also something that they have to deal with on top of the fact that they might also have a mental illness that they have to talk about. And fortunately, therapy is really expensive. So I know the Hart uh, Hartley House offers counseling services and Mental Health Alliance, or sorry, Mental Health Association of Frederick County also offers counseling services. But on your own, it can be really expensive to have that therapy that you need. Was there anything uh, that you guys were, if you there was going to be one more part of this series, what would you like to dive into next? Oh, what would I not want to dive into? Um, there's at least three that I have planned out in my head. Um, we want to go into protective orders. Uh, I didn't get enough in the legal system article about protective orders, but um, protective orders are a piece of paper and they can do a lot, 
but they can also not do a lot. Um, so I really want to do a deep dive into um, protective orders. And actually, tomorrow we're going to the courthouse to listen to protective orders and how. Because um, just to get a protective order, you often have to face the person you want the protective order against in court, which is not exactly an ideal situation for women who are trying to get away from somebody. Um, I want to talk about male victims of domestic violence uh, because it does happen to men. It's one in seven men. Um, most of our article is focused on women because it happens to one in four women. Um, so it is a bigger issue for women, but I do want to make sure that we also talk about men. Um, and then uh, I would just like to <laughs> keep picking at the different things that we've like come up and we said, all right, this is going to be a sidebar. Like Every sidebar that we talked about could essentially be a story. Well, Heather, uh, we, we really thank you for your time. We're going to bring in Wyatt now uh, to see what he has to say. But thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Wyatt, you partnered with Heather in this four-part series. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about the experience survivors have in shelters and with local resources. So um, if you could start by just telling us, you know, from the moment someone does choose to leave a situation of domestic violence, what are their options and, and what is that experience like in Frederick County? What I really wanted to show in the third part of the series focusing on housing is when someone who has experienced domestic violence is leaving that violent and very dangerous situation that doesn't necessarily end the the trauma and danger that they're in. Essentially moving from a place where you do have a house, but it's a violent household, you're moving into a shelter system that might not be able to meet your needs or can re-traumatize you. Um, essentially, the, the basic shelter systems or more general homeless shelters are not set up to, to house people who have experienced domestic violence. Um, and that's just, it's not necessarily that the shelters don't want to deal with those people. It's just that their their way of meeting the needs of the homeless community um, are in direct conflict with with people who have experienced domestic violence. So, which is why there are um, two shelters in Frederick County that are designed specifically for people who've experienced the sort of complex trauma of domestic violence. What do survivors of domestic violence need that's different from what maybe a person experiencing homelessness needs? Um, one thing is just safety, um, as well as. Uh, places for them to sort of understand what they've gone through. Um, and I think it's, it's good to understand that by putting it in contrast to what a general shelter goes through. So a general shelter, you might open the doors at six o'clock in the evening and people will come in and they'll have beds in a shared communal space similar to like an army barracks that you might have seen in older movies. And then in the, in the morning, um, they'll get up maybe like five or six and they'll move back out on the street. If you're a survivor of domestic violence, that can be one, very traumatizing and puts you in grave danger again. Um, one, because you you just experienced something that's violated your sense of security and safety and you're put in a new place around a lot of people that you aren't familiar with. Um, that can be very shocking and cause a lot, a lot of anxiety with people. And then also, if you're putting them back out on the street, that's a chance where they could run into the abuser again who might be out looking for them that now that they have left, as well as just experiencing violence living on the street. Um, there was a survey that was mentioned in the article, and it's about 50% of people who are experiencing homelessness experience some sort of violence during that period that they are living out on the street. So with, with domestic violence shelters, then, uh, you, I'm assuming you're allowed, you can stay there 24 hours a day? Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Okay. So w with, with all of that said, can you give us uh, some of the specific to Frederick County uh, places that people can go? Yeah, so there are two main shelters. Um, 
Hartley House um, is the main one. It has a comprehensive set of services for people who have experienced domestic violence. And then Faith House, which is part of the rescue mission, which is, which is um, not necessarily designed specifically for, for women who have experienced domestic violence, but about half of the people who are staying there um, have experienced domestic violence. And the interesting thing about those two shelters, especially Hartley House, their address um, is kept private, so no one knows where they're staying. So if someone has experienced domestic violence and they're fleeing from the abuser, they can go to a place um, where they necessarily can't be found. And they can stay there as long as they want during the day. They don't necessarily have to be leave. They don't have to leave unlike other shelters that might be cleaning. And then at the shelters, they have um, private rooms the majority of the time, um, places for their children to stay too, uh, which can be a big deal, as well as creating a community where women feel that they are welcome. Um, it's just little things like allowing them to make small choices about their life that uh, these women who have experienced domestic violence didn't have in that abusive relationship. Um, when it comes to talking to some victims, which I know that you did, uh, and I do believe you spoke with Chloe, mm -hmm. um, what, how, was that, how was that essentially? How was that conversation? Um, what was it like talking to her and what, what did you uh, take away most from speaking with Chloe? I think speaking with, with someone like Chloe and her situation specifically talk, really shows how in these situations, um, once you start the spiral of homelessness, it's really hard to get out of it. Um, essentially, she was moving from a house that she owned with her husband who was abusing her, and then she went to a room that in Frederick County, these rooms are not cheap, um, and she was, ended up being evicted from that room, which gave her a mark on her credit, which makes, her, makes it harder for her to get apartments down the line. She ended up going into the shelter system and just with the lack of affordable housing in Frederick County, we have about an 11,000 unit shortage um, of affordable housing units. So it's really hard for someone to move from a situation where they might be economically tied and just their stable housing tied to a domestic violence situation to move into this sort of in-between stage where they can be re-traumatized. They might feel the need to go back to the person that was abusive to them because um, that provided some sort of safety, whether it's a housing but not necessarily a physical or mental side of safety. So uh, talking to, to people like Chloe who can talk about their experiences directly really shows that just leaving the situation does not mean that survivors of domestic violence are safe. And is it common once someone has left for them to go back or, or is it common? And what is that kind of like? Yeah, speaking to some of the, the leaders of Hartley House, they, they talk about usually takes about seven to nine tries um, before someone will leave a, a uh, violent situation. Um, and then there's also the chance that you go out into the shelter system or you might be go out living on your own. And if you're struggling financially, you don't, you're not really, your needs aren't being met in the shelter system, that you'll go back to the abuser. And that's really a, a shortfall of the, the social services that are available for people who enter them to not feel welcome or to not feel like their needs are being met or understood that they turn back to the person that's abusing them because they feel more at home there or that they feel that that is a, a better option than staying in these other situations that can be more traumatizing. You just used the word uh, shortfall. Uh, with that in mind, is there a, a sort of a limit on how long people can stay at the shelters? At, not the homeless shelter, but the domestic, like Hartley House, for instance. Yes. So I believe Hartley House is a 45-day um, program. Okay. Um, and then... Uh, Faith House is a 90-day program. Um, both of those have extensions. So essentially, when you enter the sh those shelters, you're given case management, and they're working with you to get goals to move on to some sort of housing that you can have 
on your own. Um, and if you're pro progressing but not necessarily there at the end of the 90 days or the, the other length of time, you can get an extension. Did you talk to anybody who had, had been there for 90 days? Uh, yeah, some of the, the people that we've talked to have been at the, the shelters longer, um, and then obviously some have moved on to their own housing. And how did they talk about the adjustment period moving from the shelter back out? Back out into the yeah, community? Back, yeah. Um, I guess we didn't necessarily get into that, um, especially with talking to someone like Chloe. She talked about the trauma that was leaving the, the violent household and moving out on her own and then into the shelters um, because she did have two children who ended up staying with her husband who was abusing her. And she talked about that was the first time that she had really been away from them. Um, and it was really difficult for her because that was the first time that she had been separated from her children when she couldn't be there on the nights that they were sick or the time they needed help with homework because she was sort of protecting herself from that violence. But it was very difficult for her to be away from her children. You mentioned that the address isn't publicly available and that's a safety precaution. Um, what other things are survivors saying that they wish they had in terms of resources um, when they're in one of these shelters, things that they that would make them feel more comfortable or would help with that transition? Um, one of the big things with the, the shelters is the privacy um, and giving people space to sort of understand the trauma that they've went through. Um, obviously, when you leave a housing situation, your, your housing is unstable. It's a lot to deal with. You're trying to figure out, one, where your next meal might be coming from, where you're going to be spending that night. So having a place that you have a stable housing situation, you're not necessarily paying rent and not have to worry about that if you are struggling to find a job. Just a sense of security that tonight and the night after, you have a safe place to stay. Um, I think that was really big, and a lot of people talked about that. And then the, the welcoming community that those places create and, and being heard. And I think that was a big part of the, the communities that are created in the, the shelters. How do you approach conversations with survivors? You're talking about something very sensitive. Um, what, is your, what are your kind of strategies when you're, when you're having those difficult conversations? Yeah, the, the thing that Heather and I talked about beforehand, and then obviously whenever we were interviewing someone who had experienced domestic violence, um, we would say to them, we understand this is a very traumatic experience in your life. Um, and if there's ever a time that we're asking about something in particular that you don't want to talk about or that might be difficult for you and you need to take a break, just please let us know that. Um, and then the other thing that we, we talked about with the people is towards the end of the interviews, we would ask them just a little bit more about themselves and get them talking about things that they were interested in. Because we understand with these people who have experienced domestic violence, this is one episode of their life and it's not defining who they are as a person and they have a lot more to offer than just like speaking to this one very traumatic part of their life we asked heather this but i'm interested in your uh, response as well what what drew you to want to work on a series like this well heather initiated it yeah um, and i was very interested as someone who covers social services and then just being um being interested in making sure that people the people's voices who have somewhat been marginalized or who often aren't don't make it into the paper mm -hmm. um, are talked about. Um, and I guess th there is also a sort of like a personal angle to it for me. Um, when I was much younger, uh, a group of us knew um, a, a young couple. We were friends with this girl and we knew that her boyfriend was abusing her and none of us did anything about it. Frankly, we were, we were cowards. Um, 
And that's always just sort of stuck with me that none of us stepped in, none of us did anything. Well, there, another question we asked Heather that I, I really want to ask you as well is if there's a story that maybe didn't make it into the reporting that you've done or something that you learned throughout this process that really, really sticks out with you. I guess the thing that sticks out, um, not necessarily a story, but just an overarching theme is when, when people experience this complex trauma, it sticks with them for the rest of their life, no matter how much therapy they've gone through, no matter how much success they might have had. I mean, we spoke to people who experienced these traumatic events years and years ago, but it's still very fresh in their minds. And that's, that's the depth of this trauma, that even though it might have happened 20 years ago, it's still very fresh in their mind. They still think about it almost every day. Well, I think that's all we have, Emma. Unless that's all we have time for. That's all yeah. we have time for. Well, thank you so much, Wyatt, for coming by. Yeah, thank you guys. Mm-hmm.